Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. And um, we are continuing our series today called Prince of Peace, in which we are thinking about the difference it makes to be a follower of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, in a world that is so often filled with fear. And today I have the, uh, the, the joy of talking about peace with creation. Uh, I think it's fair to say that one of the big challenges our world is facing right now, one of the things that is being talked about more than ever before, is the state and future of our planet. Unless you've been hiding under a rock for the past year, I think you will have noticed that there seems to have been an increased urgency around environmental issues. Let me just give you a little bit of a snapshot of what is going on right now, and it will be a tiny snapshot. In the last six months, we have seen the Extinction Rebellion movement staging protests, well, all around the world, but particularly in London, against climate change and the loss of biodiversity. There have been many documentaries, such as David Attenborough's Our Planet on Netflix, which have uh, talked about the incredible beauty of our world, but also documentaries such as his one on climate change on the BBC, talking about the huge challenges our world is facing right now. I think that when I read through the the news articles, I read through my news feeds, I read through my social media feeds, I am seeing more about the environment right now than I ever have at any point in time that I can remember. And there are a whole load of subjects that people are talking about. Here's just a few of them. A population increase. Did you know that our world, uh, our, our population is increasing by 80 million people every single year? That is a huge number to increase every year. And that is having a huge strain on a whole load of things in our environment. It's having a huge strain on food production. So there are 1.2 billion people in our world who are undernourished or malnourished. 1.5 billion people don't have adequate supplies of drinking water. Increased population has resulted in a loss of biodiversity. Three species of animals or plants go extinct every single day. In the next eight hours, there will be a a species of plant or animal that is gone from our planet forever. And we could go on looking at a whole load of things to do with uh, energy or climate change, air quality, waste, deforestation, I can never pronounce that one, and soil erosion. Like, Like Everywhere you look, there is people talking about and and, um, grappling with issues to do with our environment. It's everywhere, which has led to what many people are calling um, eco-anxiety, which psychology today describes as a fairly recent psychological disorder affecting an increasing number of individuals who worry about the environmental crisis. This is everywhere around us. It's a conversation everyone is having. So the question I want to ask today is, How should we, as followers of Jesus, live in an age of eco-anxiety? How should our faith, as followers of Jesus, affect the way we think about and act within our world? And I should say at the outset, like I am both excited and daunted about this topic today. I'm excited because actually this is a topic I've wanted to talk about for ages. And to my knowledge, we've never addressed at Christchurch London before. So I'm really excited. But I'm also daunted because this is a subject we've never talked about at Christchurch London before. And so there's a lot to say and not long to say it. So I will speak very fast. I'm sorry about that. Get the podcast play on half speed if that helps you. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but for today, like, I'm going to speak quite quickly, and I will necessarily skim the surface, but I hope it will be a helpful skim nonetheless. And I'm also daunted because I know that, to be perfectly honest, I have got a long way to go in this area myself. 
I'm not speaking to you today as someone who feels like I've got this nailed in my life. I'm not speaking to you today, certainly, as like an expert on the science of climate change. Like, that is not me. I'm speaking to you today as someone who cares deeply about the Bible and who wants to bring the Word of God into this current cultural conversation in a way that hopefully will help all of us to think more uh, more biblically and more practically about how we can live in this era of eco-anxiety. So I want to look at two themes that come up in Scripture at the beginning and end of Scripture, which have to do with human purpose and human destiny. And we'll begin at the beginning of the Bible. So Genesis tells us that God created everything. And I don't think the point of the Genesis uh, creation accounts is actually to tell us how he did it over how long he did it. Interesting questions, though, these are. I think the point of Genesis is to tell us by whom the world was made and for what purpose. And it tells us quite clearly that everything that exists was created by God. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So God creates everything. But at the beginning, it's this formless kind of chaotic mess. And his spirit is hovering over the waters. And then he starts to speak. And that combination of word and spirit come together to bring order out of chaos. So Genesis tells us that he created in six phases. In the poem of Genesis, it's depicted as six days. And what he does, first of all, is he creates these three realms of light and darkness, sea and sky, land and plants. Then in days four to six, he fills them with the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish and the birds, with animals and humans. And day six is when he creates humankind, male and female, made in his image, equally uh, made with, with purpose and dignity, equal in value to him. And the way we often tell the story of creation is we kind of talk about him making all these things in the day six. That was the pinnacle of his creation when he made us. And in one sense, that's true. There is something different about humanity compared to all the rest of creation. But in two very important senses, I don't think it's actually a very helpful summary to say God created everything and then we're the pinnacle of his creation. Two reasons why I don't think that's helpful. Firstly, actually day six isn't the pinnacle of creation. Day seven is. It's day seven when God looked at everything he had done. He finished working. He sat back. He said, that day is holy, not the day he made us. Day seven is the pinnacle of creation. And I won't say too much on that because Joel did a brilliant job talking about Sabbath uh, the other week. Check out the podcast if you weren't here for it. But the second reason why I don't think it's always helpful to sort of summarize day six, the creation of humanity being the pinnacle of creation, is because although we are distinct from everything else God has made, we're not that distinct. We are more closely related to the rest of creation than we tend to think. It says in Genesis 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And there's a play on words going on here in the Hebrew because the word for man is Adam, hence the name Adam, but the word for the ground is Adamah. So mankind is literally born out of the ground. We are beings of the dust. We are beings of the earth. We are an intrinsic part of the creation. It's not the case that God made everything out of the earth and out of the dust and then imported us from elsewhere to be like regional managers over this ecosystem. Rather, we are part of the ecosystem. We are born out of the dust of the earth. And when God created everything, 
He said of the trees and the, the stars and the sun and the moon and the, the plants and everything, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And I don't think, by the way, that that was a kind of very British, mm, that's good. I, th- I think it's like a, yes, that's amazing, like with a million emojis. I think, like, <laughs> I think God was excited about creation all the way through. I think that because in Job 38, 7, he says that at creation, the morning stars and the angels shouted for joy. So God loves creation. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He gets to day six and he says, this is very good. And the way we read that is to say, ah, humans are on the scene. Humans are very good. Everything else is just good. I don't think that's the point at all. The point is that everything God can see on day six is good, including everything he made on days one to five. The point is that God looked at everything, including us, not just us, everything including us and said, now this is very good. This is complete. What's more Think about the fact that we are made on day six. What else was made on day six? The animals. Like if the author of Genesis had wanted to communicate to us that we are somehow completely different from the animals, we would have been made on a different day, but we weren't. We were made in the same phase as the animals. Now, to be clear, I am not saying that we are no different from animals. We are, and I'll explain why in a moment. But I am saying we have a lot more in common than we typically realize. And I think that's important to realize because often what we do is we overplay humanity's difference from the rest of creation in a way that leads us to having a very human-centered view of this world. So we tend to think that we are apart from creation rather than a part of creation. That the world is somehow here for our good, for our benefit, rather than us being here for its benefit or as part of this whole. And our human-centered reading of Genesis means that we often miss the fact that a lot of the things God says to us in the Genesis account, he also says to the rest of creation. Let me give you just three examples. Firstly, food. In Genesis 1, 29, God gives humanity every plant for food. But then in verse 30, he says the same to the animals. We are literally meant to share our food with the animals. Which should make us stop and ask this. If our approach to food production means that we harvest food for humans at the expense of animals getting to eat, have we somehow misread the way that God intended things to work? Are we actually undermining the way God intended the world to work? A second example, agency. See, God creates everything, but then he gives us delegated responsibility. We'll look at this in a moment. He tells us to rule and reign on his behalf. But it's not just us. He actually tells the earth to give forth creatures, uh, or plants rather, and the sea, the waters, to bring forth creatures. The sun and the moon were made to rule the day and night. We are to share agency with all the rest of creation, which should make us stop and ask. Are we as humans ever in danger of exerting our agency at the expense of creation doing what it was made to do? If the way we humans rule and reign means that the land becomes less able to produce crops or the seas become less hospitable to life, are we actually undermining and working against the way God has intended this world to be? A third example, blessing. In chapter 128, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And we've certainly got on and done that. Like it's about the only thing we've been obedient to. Um, but notice, he doesn't just say that to humans. Verse 22, he says the same thing to the birds and the sea creatures. So if one of the effects of our populating or overpopulating the earth is that animals get squeezed out and forced into extinction... Are we actually working against the way God has intended this world to be? 
My point is this. We can easily read Genesis in such a way as to emphasize our uniqueness, which leads us to think that the world is here for our good and we can do whatever we want in this habitat we have been made or given. Whereas actually what Genesis teaches us is that we are here to outwork our blessings and responsibilities in partnership with all the rest of creation, not at its expense. Are you with me? Now, to be clear, there is a difference for us as human beings. There is a specific role that humans are given which isn't the same for other creatures. We're told in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, that God made us in his image as his representatives. And he told us to rule and subdue the earth or have dominion and subdue the earth. And those two words, subdue and have dominion, are really important. The uh, late British historian and philosopher Arnold Toynbee, who spent many years at LSE and Kings, um, he actually says that these two words are to blame for our current ecological crisis. Actually, he thinks that Christians are to blame with it. He wasn't a big fan of us. Um, And the Bible and God, actually, he says, are to blame. Because he says, as a result of these two words, Christians for thousands of years have thought it is their God-given right to subdue and crush and enslave the earth and use it, exploit it for our own ends. Now, I think he has a point. Because if you read those words and think that God has told us to treat the earth uh, like our posture towards it is that we are slave masters and we get to subdue and crush and enslave it, then of course you're not going to care for the world. You're going to crush it. You're going to use it for your own ends. But I would push back. That is not what those two words mean. And the reason I know that is because that's not what they mean in the rest of Scripture. If you read Psalm 72, it's this beautiful poem about the perfect king who rules, who has dominion in the most perfect way. It's pointing forward to Jesus ultimately. And what does it look like to rule as an image bearer properly? It's justice. It's standing up for the vulnerable. It's contributing to the flourishing of the world, even laying down your own life in the process. To be an image bearer, to extend God's kingdom is not to enslave the world, but to serve the world. This is clear even in Genesis. If you look at Genesis 2, 15, which is like the parallel account of the same thing, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care for it. And those two Hebrew words are probably better translated, actually, serve and protect. We're here to serve and protect the world. They're the same two words that were given to the priests to tell him what he is meant to do with the tabernacle and the temple. So when God makes us as his image bearers and tells us to rule and have dominion and subdue, he doesn't mean crush and enslave the world. He means serve it. Act like priests who are caring for this beautiful temple that God has made. Now, I know that most of us know this. I don't think there are many of you who are sitting there today thinking, oh, I thought I was meant to crush this world and make it my slave and exploit it for my own benefit. That's what Genesis tells me. I know most of us don't think that. But my question is this, is there ever a danger that we know what we're meant to do up here, but in here and in our actions, we live a different way? I think that many of us know we're meant to be here to care for this world, but do we honestly live like that's our calling and our purpose? I have believed this reading of Genesis for years. Like if you had asked me to do this talk 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have said much different to what I've said now, maybe nuanced slightly differently. I've believed this for years. But to be perfectly honest, I've not lived like I believed this for years. Because so often it's easy to believe it up here, but to live like this world is really just here for me. And I can use this habitat however I want. And I suspect that I am not alone. In fact, I know I'm not alone. 
Because we are seeing now the effects of Christians and everyone made in the image of God, which is every human being, living for many, 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 many thousands of years, exploiting this world we were created to care for. The ecologist Aldo Leopold says this, we live in a world of wounds. I think he's right. The Apostle Paul puts it similarly in Romans 8. He says the world is groaning. It's in pain. I think that's what we're hearing right now through the headlines, through the just sense of urgency that's growing. We're hearing the groaning of the world. It's in pain. It's been subjected to futility, not, Paul says, by its own accord or its own decision, but because of those who were given the task of caring for it. We, humanity, has subjected this world to futility. It is now a world of wounds. It is in agony. But, says Paul, there is hope. Because creation is eagerly expecting and awaiting the day when it will get set free and made new again. Which brings us to the second aspect I want to look at today, which is this. Human destiny. What is the destiny of humanity? Well, many people would argue that the Bible teaches that what God's going to do at the end of time is come back, take us away from this earth, and we'll live forever in some disembodied existence in heaven. And if that's what you believe human destiny is, that has a huge effect on the way you live and you treat the world right now. The philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach says this, nature, the world, has no value, no interest for Christians. The Christian thinks only of himself and the salvation of his soul. I think for many people that is a fair critique because if you believe that God is ultimately going to take us away from this earth, then at best we're kind of not going to care too much about it. At worst, we may think, well, we might as well destroy it because God clearly doesn't care about this world either. But I would put it to you that that is not what the Bible teaches the fate of humanity is. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, you see this beautiful depiction of what God is going to do for all of creation. And it's not that he takes us away, it's rather that he comes back and makes this world new. In Revelation 21 and 22, it says that God will create a new heavens and new earth, or perhaps more accurately, a renewed heaven and earth. It will be like a city descending from heaven to earth. So God will come to live with us on the earth for eternity. There'll be no death, mourning, crying or pain. Jesus will return not to take us away from the world, but to make this world everything he always intended for it to be. And then it says in Revelation that there is no, no sea in the new creation, which is sad for those of us who love getting out of London and going to the beach. I don't think it's saying that there will be, literally be no sea. I think it's saying something deeper than that. Because in the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos, its enmity, it's everything that stands between the world and the purposes of God. So when Revelation says that there is no sea, what it's saying is this, the process that began at the, the very start, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and the waters of chaos and then brought order in that chaos, that process will be complete in the new creation. Hence, there'll be nothing, no chaos standing in the way of God's perfect world. And what I love about this picture of the new creation is that it's not actually that God just hits reset and it goes back to a garden. Notice that? It's a city. God loves cities. I love cities. I, I love being here in London. And I think part of what we are meant to do as humans is, is develop and be ingenious and build and create cities. And the new creation is a city. It's got walls and foundations and it's well-crafted. It's a physical place. But it's not a city that favors concrete at the expense of creation. It's a perfect hybrid. It's a garden city. 
It's a city with walls and gates and then a river that runs through the center of it, clear like crystal, watering trees that stand by the banks, which produce fruit all year round, which is for the healing of the nations. The biblical picture of human destiny is to dwell forever with God in the renewed creation, which is a garden city, a perfect hybrid. See, God cares about all that he has made, not just humans, every bit of it. And therefore, I think we are to care for this world. After all, we are going to spend eternity here. Now, that was a very quick summary of the Bible, <laughs> which, which is a big book. right? Um, and it may well be that you're like, yeah, but what about this? I've got questions about verses in Peter and, and, and Philippians and Thessalonians, all sorts of places. Like, I understand that, and I don't have time to address those today. But if you want to listen to a day's worth of my voice, you're welcome to on the website. Um, we have some recordings from a day I taught, uh, Theology Matters New Creation, where we got into this in a lot more depth. So if that's helpful for you, do check it out. I hope you'll find it useful. But what I want to do is just kind of come down to say, well, that's the sort of big picture, but so what? Like, how does this affect the way I live and think now in an era of eco-anxiety? How should I think about the world and how should I live in this world as a follower of Jesus? And there are loads of practical things we could talk about, a million application points. But I want to suggest four postures that I think all of us could adopt. And I think that every application point falls, flows out of these four postures. And the first posture I want to suggest that all of us should adopt is wonder. It's wonder. We should learn to wonder at and love creation. In his brilliant book on creation care, Stephen Boomer Prediger writes this, We care for only what we love. We love only what we know. We truly know only what we experience. None of you are going to care for creation if you're like, oh, it's just something I've got to do. <laughs> like, like, you will care for it if you love it. So you need to develop love and wonder. And the only way you're going to develop love and wonder for the world is by experiencing it. So here's my suggestion. Some practical application for you this week. Go outside. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> the end of the talk, go outside. Spend a bit more time outside than you would normally. Walk somewhere you would normally have got public transport. Like, sit on a bench and look at creation. Smell a flower, pet an animal, hug a tree if that's your thing. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if that's your thing, go for it. Like, just enjoy creation. Until we learn to love creation, we won't begin to care for it. Now, to be honest, I am not naturally a kind of creation lover. Like, th that's not the way I'm wired. Some people, maybe you're like this. You just go outside and you walk through a field and you're just uh, immediately just like weeping tears of joy as you engage with God. And I'm not like that. I've got horrible hay fever, so I... <laughs> I'm weeping, but it's not a spiritual experience. Like yours, it's like tears and praise. Me, it's tears and snot, and it's not like. Uh, so, but I am learning to love this world, and I'm learning simply by taking more time to be proactive and getting out and enjoying it. Like on my days off, I take my daughter and we go and we have picnics in a park, or we go um, and explore a place that we've not been to before. We go to Morden Hall Park and go on the wetlands boardwalk and look at wildlife and just things like this, which I find a bit weird. But the more I'm doing it, the more I think, oh, there is so much beauty in this world I'm in danger of missing out on. And the thing is that actually if we miss out on the beauty of creation and creation, scripture says in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, is meant to tell us something about God. If I miss out on something in creation, I miss out on something I could know about God. So it's a spiritual thing to get out and enjoy this world. We've got a little vegetable plot that we share with some of our neighbors and we're trying to learn to grow vegetables. And I'm probably going to kill a lot of them, but I'm trying and I'm learning. And you know what? It's changed the way I think about the world. 
Simply getting more engaged with the world makes me love it more, which makes me grieve more when I see it getting damaged and when I damage it myself. So first step, grow in wonder. And if you are less of an outsidey person and more of a TV person, start with Netflix, okay? There's, like, God has helped you out here. Like, there are documentaries there that will help you grow in wonder of creation. You know, it blows my mind that there are bits of creation that have existed for however many thousands of years and, and we haven't known about until Netflix came along. And now these documentary makers are filming bits of the world that up to now only God has got to enjoy. And now he's like, yay, praise me for Netflix. They get to join in. So if that's you, if that's you, <laughs> start with... <laughs> Elise single-handedly keeps Netflix alive, I'm pretty sure. Like, um, if that's you, like start there. Learn to love and wonder at this world. And it's a spiritual thing. Like, if this is hard for you, pray. Ask God. Reveal yourself through creation. Help me to fall in love with this world you have made. Wonder is closely tied to worship. Like, the prophets and the psalmists regularly talk about the trees and the rocks singing out and clapping their hands. So when we worship, when we wonder, we join with them in their worship. Second posture is humility. We need to remind ourselves this world is not ours. Like Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. Not just humans, the world and all who live in it. Everything belongs to him. It's not here for our benefit. We need to see this world as a gift. We need to have humility to see ourselves as not being the center of the universe, but him, center of the universe. You know, one of the ways I realized that my human-centered view of the, the world manifests for me is that I can often hear stats about loss of biodiversity and think, so, so what? Because I measure value based on whether something is helpful to me. And so I hear a stat about a plant in a country I'm never going to visit going extinct, and it doesn't move me at a heart level because my measure of value is human-centered. Is that thing useful to me? Now, a lot of creation is useful to us as humans, but that is not the measure of value. The measure of value is whether something is actually valuable to other parts of creation. Like trees and mountains give shelter to animals I may never encounter. Plants that I don't want to go anywhere near may feed other animals. And so it's valuable for the rest of creation. But ultimately, the reason things in this world are valuable is not because they're useful to me or even to other bits of creation. It's because God made them and he loves them. And I don't want to destroy something that God loves. Like the diversity of this world reflects something of God's character. So if things go extinct in this world, that means there's a bit less diversity and a bit less of God's glory on display in this world. And I should grieve that. John Stott put it quite strongly. He said extinction is blasphemy because when something goes out of being in this world, that's a bit less of God's glory on display. I need to have humility to measure value, not on what's useful to me, but on what matters to God. Read Psalm 104, Psalm 146, and plenty of other places, sorry, 148. And you will find time and time again, it talks about God's delight in creation. I want to keep alive what God loves. We need humility towards this world. And we also, I think, need humility towards one another. To be perfectly honest, I think something that I have often found off-putting about subjects like this, and I know I'm not alone in this, is that the people who get most passionate about it tend to come across a bit I don't know what the word is. <laughs> Not one that I can say in a church, at least. But you know, <laughs> self-righteous, maybe. Like sometimes people who get most passionate about these sorts of things end up just pointing the finger and making everyone else feel awful for not being as passionate as they are. Maybe you know those 
kind of people. In his book, PlanetWise, Dave Bookless uh, says, don't be an eco-Pharisee. And I like that. I think that's really helpful. Some people get really passionate about this and then their tone becomes judging. Like, why aren't you doing this like I am? And to be honest, that doesn't motivate me to change. It just makes me more stubborn, if anything else. We need humility towards one another to recognize we're all at different places on this journey. There'll be areas where I am way ahead than you, maybe. (laughs) There'll be many areas where you are a million miles ahead than I am. And the way we help one another to grow is through humbly encouraging one another, not pointing the finger like eco-Pharisees. I have personally benefited from people in our church who have been patient with me and have provoked me and have challenged me and then have celebrated when I've made changes that are tiny and very slow, but they're like, well done. And that encourages me to keep going. I want us to be a community of humble image bearers who encourage one another to grow in this, not eco-Pharisees. So we need humility. Thirdly, we need a posture of responsibility. That is, we need to recognize where we have failed to live up to our calling to serve and care for this world. We need to take responsibility for our actions. We need to repent, that is to change our thinking, and we need to live differently. Now, at Christchurch, we often talk about the fact that we believe we are here to work for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of our city, but also the whole world. And those things are actually quite intertwined. So it's not uncommon for people to say, yeah, I kind of get that creation care matters, but that's, that's not really my thing. Social justice is more of my thing. And I understand that. All of us have limited time and resources. None of us can fight every battle or make every change in one go. But I would push back a little bit. I don't think we can say I care about social justice, not creation, because actually creation care is a social justice issue. Because there are billions of people in this world right now who are suffering. They don't have access to clean water or food because of the way we treated the environment. It is not possible to say I care about social justice and not care about the planet. The two are intertwined. We need to care about this world if we care about people. One of the heroes we mention frequently at Christchurch is William Wilberforce, who along with many, many others, worked for the abolition of slavery in our nation. But what you may not know is that he was also one of the founder members of the RSPCA, which was the world's first animal welfare organization. Now, I find that fascinating because this guy didn't have a divide in his mind, I care about social justice, not creation care. He understood that as an image bearer, I'm here to care for everything God has created, including animals and people. I want to encourage us as part of our outworking of of, of being passionate about working for the cultural, social and spiritual renewal of our city and our world. We need to take responsibility for the planet. And as a church, I don't think we have done a good job at this to date. And we are working to change this. And I hope that this talk is a step in the right direction. If you visit the website, christchurchlondon.org forward slash environment, you'll find a page there that expresses a few things that we are doing and and hopefully we'll keep updating it as we do more, as we learn to grow in stewardship of our world. Do check out that page. And I hope you'll find it helpful for helping you to think about how you can take responsibility as well. If you visit the page, you'll find a whole load of book recommendations. Uh, Here are just a few of them. They're all great. Probably these two are a bit more theological. Uh, This third one, Ellis for Lifestyle by Ruth Valerio. If you want a really practical 
guide to sort of application, this is the good one to go for. This will give you a whole load of ideas about how you can develop this in your own life. And actually, if you think, I would love to start thinking more about how we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, can start caring for this world, but I'd love to do it with others, then my recommendation would be go to that page. And this book, uh, PlanetWise, has actually been turned into a course which you could run in a connect group if you're already part of a connect group. Or maybe if you're passionate about this, gather others, start a new connect group. I hope we might have a few groups going at some point so that we can think about this more as a community. Three simple things you may want to do to begin taking responsibility. Firstly, work out your impact. Like Before you know what to do, what to change in your life, it's worth stopping and thinking, what impact am I having? Therefore, what is going to make the biggest difference? Go to our environment page. You'll find a link to some resources. You'll find a link to a carbon calculator where you can work out your carbon footprint and you can take some steps to change that. Maybe it will give you advice about how you can switch energy providers to a more eco-friendly option or you can offset your carbon footprint. A whole load of things you can check out there. Secondly, maybe consider what you eat. This surprised me when I, I heard this, but research suggests that one of the most effective things we can do as individuals to make change is, uh, is to think about our eating habits. Think about what we eat and what we do with the food we consume as well. Perhaps you might want to try buying more locally sourced ingredients or organic vegetables or whatever it happens to be. Something that's really close to my heart is, is food waste. You know, it really bothers me the amount of food that gets wasted. 30% of food bought in this nation gets thrown away. 30% in a world where there are over a billion people hungry. That is awful. So what steps can we make as individuals to try and reduce that? Maybe it's planning further ahead. Maybe it's thinking more creatively about how you can use up leftovers or whatever it happens to be. Let's see if there are some changes we can make. Maybe you want to consider reducing your meat consumption. Don't worry, you don't have to go vegan. Um, I, yeah, well, Nengi's saying go vegan. Um, yeah. Uh, I made some vegan meringues. <laughs> I made some vegan meringues this weekend. They were the most rancid thing I've had in a long time. And, and uh, Nengi liked my Instagram story where I was like, making vegan meringues. She's like, yay. She didn't read the next bit, which was like, <laughs> like, like One of my friends said, use chickpea water. It doesn't taste of chickpeas. It does. They were lying. It's like sugary hummus. It's horrible. So, you don't have to go vegan. Um, in, in the new creation, actually, Isaiah tells us we will eat the greatest of meat, so Jesus will be barbecuing and I want to be front of the queue. Like, <laughs> but, 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 did you know that the meat and dairy industries contribute more to climate change than the entire global transport sector combined? So is there a middle ground? Is there something you can do to maybe eat less meat and better welfare meat? Or actually, research says that cutting red meat out of your diet may be the most helpful thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint. So maybe eat less beef and lamb, for example. Just a thought. Um, talk to Nengi. No, actually, don't talk to me. And I'll give you <laughs> or visit our website for more thoughts on that. Third suggestion, uh, reduce waste. Think about how much waste you create and what you can do to recycle better. Um, help us out. Bring reusable bottles and cups on Sunday so we don't have to uh, produce more waste as a church. Help us out on that. There are loads of things that we could do, and I could carry on for ages, um, but I won't. Don't worry. But, but actually, it strikes me that this is not just something we do as individuals in the comfort of our own homes and our own lifestyles. There may be some people here who have particular skills and passions in their workplace that mean that you are expertly placed to be at the forefront of fighting climate change on a, on a global Level. I would love for Christians to be at the forefront of coming up with creative solutions for how we can better care for our world and make some systemic changes so that everyone gets to benefit. 
And so it might be that you're here and you're an architect or journalist or city planner or teacher or a scientist or whatever, and there may be things that you can do that will benefit the whole world. Can I encourage you to factor this into the way that you work and the way that you think about your calling in every area of your life? And actually, if there are some of you who are thinking, you know, I'd love to partner with others. I've not thought about that, and I'd love to know how I can work with others to make a difference, then let me know. Like, I don't know what we'll do, uh, but I'd love to gather people who might be able to share some ideas. And so drop me a line, liam at christchurchlondon.org, and we'll see what we can do. I would love to see Christians being at the forefront of this. So four postures, wonder, humility, responsibility, and then finally, maybe the band can come back up. I want to suggest that we should all, as followers of Jesus, adopt a posture of hope. Now, our world is full of fear right now, particularly around this issue. And I think that hope is a uniquely Christian posture because we believe that we know how this story is going to go. We know the end of the story. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make this world new. But knowing that shouldn't make us go, well, it doesn't really matter. It shouldn't undermine what I've just talked about. We should feel the pain of our world right now. We should take responsibility for the things we have done badly, but we should also live with hope, not crippling fear. We, as followers of Jesus, should live free from eco-anxiety by putting our hope in Jesus I think the posture we should adopt towards the environment should be similar to the one we adopt towards death. That is, we hate it. It hurts us when it hits us. We grieve, and rightly so. Because when we grieve, it's an outpouring of sadness at the loss we're experiencing and the fact that this is not the way the world is meant to be. But, Paul says, we do not grieve as those without hope. I think that's key. Romans 8 says, the world is groaning in pain. And I think it's appropriate that we groan with the world, but not in a way that's sort of locked into this fatalistic narrative that everything is going to get worse and worse and worse. We groan recognizing the pain, but we also look forward in hope, knowing that God has a plan for this world. He cares about it more than we ever could. He is more grieved about it than we ever could be, and he is doing something about it. And he has risen Jesus Christ from the dead as a sign of what he's capable of. And his promise is that if you follow him, you will also get to share in that resurrection. And all of creation will share in that resurrection and will be made new. So we grieve, but not as those without hope. We grieve and we hope. And I think hope is a uniquely Christian posture and brilliant good news for a world that really needs to hear that right now. A world that is filled with eco-anxiety. So as we come into land, what I'd love to do is give us an opportunity just to pray and to express to God how we feel about his world. Maybe confess where we have not taken seriously the call to serve and protect this planet. And so in a moment, there'll be a, a prayer up on the screen and I invite us all to say it together. And then we'll worship and we'll sing a song that celebrates creation and worships our creator. And as we do that, I'm aware that we are in a box of a room where you can't see a leaf or an animal anywhere. <laughs> like, so we're going to have some images that may help you to reflect on creation. And I hope that will stimulate your imagination as we sing in worship. So why don't we stand? And let's pray this prayer together. Lord God, our Father and Creator, we thank you for this world, our home. Thank you for its beauty, complexity, and diversity. We join with all creation of which we are a part in declaring your goodness and glory. Would you forgive us for the ways we have failed to care for this world and help us encourage one another to take responsibility. While we grieve the pain that our world is enduring, 
would you also fill us with hope. We long for the day when you will return and make all things new. In the meantime, would you empower us as those who bear your image to serve and protect this world. Amen.